0: to Anime Audio Commentary. Today I'll be commenting on Episode 2 of Gunbuster. If you'd like to watch along, then start watching now. So interestingly, we start off this episode with a flashback or <clears throat> a sequence taking place in the past. Kind of like the first episode where Noriko was talking about her father. But this time, it seems like what we're seeing here is the incident itself. Which took place in 2015, which I find increasingly disconcerting considering 2015 was so long ago. And it was once portrayed as far enough in the future to be considered sci-fi. So I think the interesting takeaway from this scene here is that the Admiral, Noriko's father, is directly responsible for Coach surviving this incident. Is he put him on the last escape pod out of there and says, you know, you're too young to die now, so you better get your sorry butt on that vessel and out of here. And he essentially made the decision to die here... You know, that's not a decision anyone should take lightly, but as an admiral, he has certain duties... Now, something I find really interesting about Gunbuster is that the opening title sequence doesn't show anything of the titular robot. You know, it shows a bunch of things of training robots and indeed some more serious robots they use in actual combat, but none of them are the Gunbuster itself. Now, personally, I really do like the opening sequence. I think the music is superb, but... That was just something I find interesting because normally, or perhaps not normally, but somewhat often, an anime will spoil plot points or things like that in the opening sequence by showing, I guess, villains who later defect to the good guys or people who become villains, stuff like that is sort of foreshadowed in openings oftentimes, and... Oftentimes, long before it actually happens in the show, you know, like episode one kind of stuff. So, you know, that's just something I thought was interesting that, you know, maybe Gynax was a bit forward thinking here. They wanted the reveal of Gunbuster to be this big, momentous occasion, and in doing so, they sort of hid it away from the audience for a good few episodes. Now, here's something else that's very interesting. You know, they they clearly pointed out that that one robot they just flew past was a Soviet machine. The implication being that... Um, I believe Gunbuster is taking place in 2023. The idea is that, you know, even... Even in a year later than the present day at which I'm recording this episode the Soviet Union still existed and was a major power. So we have this Soviet pilot here, and I didn't notice this the first time I'd watched Gunbuster, but her name is Jung Freud. So, you know, she's been named after two pretty important psychologists, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. You know, there's a lot of fine details about Gunbuster that I don't remember from the first time watching, but I wonder if that's important, her being named after a couple of psychologists, if Gynax is being a little on the nose about things here. But back to what I was saying about Jung Freud being a Soviet pilot. You know, Gunbuster was made in the late 80s, like, 88, 89, something like that. I just think it's kind of funny that they had envisioned this future 30 years off where the Soviet Union was still around, and then three years later, real time, the whole thing just collapsed. It's just one of those interesting things about how history in many ways is really unpredictable. So now we can get some actual action here. Noriko and the others are using I guess more training mechs, but these are I guess uh, space-worthy, whatever the term is. they're They're airtight and all that, so they're capable of maneuvering in outer space and doing all that safely. So perhaps... Predictably, the Soviet here is starting to cause trouble. She wants Kazumi and Noriko to turn off their trackers so they can have a little, I guess, uh, sparring match without prying eyes watching them. And in fact, she's so confident that she wants a little two-on-one match because she knows she is a superior pilot at space combat, and the other two, in all likelihood, can't keep up with her. Pretty presumptuous of her, I would say. I mean, Kazumi was pretty skilled, and Noriko is, I guess, a raw talent, if not a practiced one. Indeed, it seems like uh, Jung has already gotten a bit more than she bargained for. Kazumi is able to keep up with her with very little effort. So it seems to me that this whole misadventure they're going on is really a bad idea. You know, messing around in the Void of Space is no joke, and I definitely wouldn't want to risk depressurizing the thing I'm sitting in over a little sparring match like this. I mean, at some point, there's no avoiding it, considering they're being trained for space combat. You know... There has to be some danger, it can't be totally safe, but at the same time, I wouldn't be taking uncalculated risks like these. Especially considering now they seem to be playing around a construction zone. Construction zones are not known for being really safe places to fool around. So just to highlight how unsafe it is, while Kazumi and Jung are just rocketing around destroying things, Noriko seems to have kind of got lost and she's now just sort of idly wandering around the construction zone. That strikes me as really not good. Of course, even worse... Jung and Cosme have seemed to have stumbled upon something interesting. What exactly it is is not clear, but it most likely pertains to those aliens. Yeah, wow. It is truly a massive gargantuan thing. It kind of, uh. It kind of reminds me of the Tyranids from Warhammer 40,000. You know, giant space locusts, essentially. So they seem to just have its preserved corpse, but, you know, just seeing something as terrible as this is enough for Noriko to break down. And understandably so. You know, I don't imagine anybody, even on a good day, would enjoy looking at something as terrifying as that. And, you know, we didn't get a whole lot of detail in terms of color, but it looked like it had been pretty decently mangled, too. Though it seems like now they've really done it, the security system is starting to kick off. Surprised it didn't happen earlier, to be honest, considering how they were breaking things. Imagine they're going to get chewed out pretty harshly for that. Yeah, as expected, Coach has got uh, the full measure of what's going on. But, you know, Coach, he's sort of... Seems to have a penchant for bending the rules, so, you know, he makes it pretty clear that, like, if you do stuff like this, you get thrown in jail, you know, for doing one of the many things you did, but, you know, we're training you to fight off these aliens, so, you know, we can't do that if you're in jail, so, you know, like, knock it off, guys. So now we learn a little bit more, and I guess this is part of the sophistication of space travel and all that. Because, you know, despite how advanced the technology seemingly is, Noriko's father was only able to visit once a year on her birthday, So it seems like um, for Jung, bygones are just bygones. You know, she didn't really mean anything by it. She just wanted to have some fun. So coincidentally doing this Neat little fan service scene that was obligatory back in the 80s. It turns out that Jung and Noriko have the same birthday. But, while that seems to smooth some things over, you know, Jung seems to be gunning after the coach, which Kazumi doesn't really like, so... I mean, you can't win them all, but I guess it's good that she's being friendly. it seems like something interesting is happening out in space, something that might concern the fleet, especially since, whatever it is, it's coming from the Perseus arm of the galaxy and it's approaching it pretty darn fast. And the fact that it's so large and moving so fast strikes everyone as a really unusual event. So it would seem to me that it could be some sort of ship or something. And if it's those aliens, you know, that would really be not good. Especially because it seems to be making a beeline for Earth. So, Coach seems to be taking this as a bit of a training exercise for Noriko and uh, Kazumi. The, uh, The officer in charge here, I don't know whether he's a captain or an admiral or whatever, he seems to be doubting Noriko again. You know, wouldn't Jung be better in her place, but Coach is pretty adamant. So this is where some of the physics gets kind of weird because they're starting to move at light speed. So for every minute they move at near light speed, that's three months that passes on Earth, or so Coach says. So if things go wrong, that's going to mean a lot of time then the time doesn't pass for them. That's the weird thing. They're sort of plucked out of time and placed at a later date. Of course, at this point, we don't really feel the full effects of all that yet, you know. We sort of know it in an academic context, but that's different from actually experiencing it. So, you know, they're all sort of offering pleasantries regarding this light-speed travel. You know, Jung says, yeah, you're gonna be missing my birthday, but... You know, oh, well, can't be helped. And they just sort of say, you know, don't turn into an old hag while we're gone. But... I don't know, they, they say it in a way that doesn't really seem to grasp the potential consequences. So I don't think this was ever really explained or addressed earlier, but I don't know why they wear those those face coverings. They just seem to be cloth, you know? I don't think they really do anything while they're inside the pressurized cockpit of the machines. So I'm wondering if it's just for... Just for appearance's sake. So as they approach the object, it's very clear that it's a spaceship originally from Earth. Worse yet, it's the Luxian, which is the ship Noriko's father was on. Coach obviously recognizes that this is immediately not a good thing. You know, Noriko can't be allowed near it, but she immediately starts acting on her own and jumps right on it. At the cost of, uh, the booster that allowed her to travel near light speed. So, man, things are not good. Based on the relativistic travel, only two days have passed on the ship since the battle. So, obviously, Noriko thinks her dad could potentially be still alive on here somewhere. And, indeed, that's... A possibility, but, you know, this is breaking rules and stuff. They're messing with relativistic time here. So, it's Coach's responsibility. He's going to drag Noriko out of there, and he tells Kazmi, you know, if three minutes pass, head back, or too much time will pass for you, you know. I'll take care of Noriko. It might take us extra time, but, you know, we'll take care of it. So, it's pretty incredible how decrepit this ship already seems to be. Granted, it did undergo a major battle in space. So, of course, Noriko is just single-minded in trying to reach the main bridge where her father would have been. Man, that guts me. She wrenches the door open to find indisputable proof. You know, the bridge had been essentially sheared open and open to the void of space, you know. There's no way he could have survived something like that. And worse yet, Noriko's wasted all this time. So Cosme also seems to be wavering in her determination to hold to the mission. You know, she was instructed to leave at a certain time, but whether or not she'll actually do that is up for debate. You know, they barely have ten seconds left when they breach the hall. So they do indeed make it, but whether or not they made it on time is the question. So Coach already knows, you know, they were late. And they were 12 seconds late. And if my math is correct... 12 seconds is a fifth of a minute, so a fifth of three months, that's like, I don't know, two and a half weeks or so. So on top of the time they were already expected to be gone for, you had two and a half extra weeks to that. That's not an insignificant amount of time. So they do in fact make it back to great fanfare, but it seems like everybody has essentially gone through training and graduated in the time that they were gone. So this is only the first instance of time messing with them. So Kazumi puts it there pretty succinctly, you know, for everyone six months have passed, Jung tries to sort of comfort her about her father, but for Noriko, it was merely an hour ago. You know, that wound is still pretty fresh. You know, I'm starting to see little hints and shades of some themes that were in Evangelion here. You know, the way Hideaki Yano was directing this, I can kind of see a resemblance. So now at the end of the episode, we have that little science lesson we always get, but this time it's on the effects of faster-than-light travel. So the basic idea here, as I understand it through physics, is that moving faster through space causes you to move slower through time. And it gets up to a point where, if you're not moving at all through space, that is the fastest you'll move through time. And if you're moving as fast through space as possible, then you do not move through time. Of course, the fastest you can move in space is the speed of light, but objects that have mass can't really fully reach the speed of light. You know, they can get really close, but... I don't remember what exactly the limiting factor is, but I don't know. There's something about having mass that prevents you from moving quite that fast. So even in this little bit at the end here, Coach is really driving home how even a slight mishap in space can really end up being fatal. So interestingly, Gunbuster has pretty long previews of next episodes. I guess that's something that can't really be avoided considering it was an OVA where I believe it was one episode released at a time over a course of several months. Alright, well that's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, then by all means, tune in for the next one. See you, Space Cowboy.